Good morning, church. It is a joy to worship with you this morning. As we continue to worship the Lord, we will do so through humbling ourselves before his word. If you have Bibles, please make sure they are open to Mark chapter 4. Uh, we're going to study verses 30 to 34 as we continue uh, looking at the parables that Jesus taught about the kingdom of God in the gospel of Mark. Uh, as you turn there, I just want to celebrate the joy with you. Isn't it fantastic to see the video of our Vacation Bible School? We had over 140 children and countless volunteers who helped pull off last week. It was truly uh, a remarkable blessing for our whole family, uh, First Presbyterian Church, and our community in general. We're very grateful. Um, the video captured a lot of the smiles. There were also tears. I saw one little buddy uh, sitting outside of Westminster Hall. Uh, he had uh, messed up in red light, green light. He had listened to the wrong word, and he was crying, wanting to redo, and he wasn't able to do it. I, I saw him. I did what any loving shepherd, pastor would do in a moment like that. I just said, kid, get over it. It's red light, green light. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> I didn't do that uh, out loud, just joking. It was, it was beautiful to see how our volunteers cared for the children, and I was reminded, actually, that it isn't just uh, children who uh, tear up over words of uh, listening in games and uh, wrong, wrong direction that's given. I was reminded about a baseball game that I read about that happened in 1915. I read it uh, a few weeks ago, and it was a story about the St. Louis Cardinals who were playing the Brooklyn Dodgers at the time. It was the seventh inning, and there was a rookie pitcher on the mound. His name was Appleton. The game was tied. It was a classic pitcher's duel, and there was a runner on third with two outs. The third base coach decided uh, that he was going to talk to the pitcher, the rookie, 23 years old. He said, Appleton, let me see that ball. And Appleton, just out of reverence for the legendary coach that was on third base, tossed him the ball. And as soon as the pitcher tossed the ball, the third base manager just moved out of the way and the ball rolled all the way to the dugout. No timeout was called. The runner from third base was able to come home and the rookie pitcher listened to the voice of the enemy and that go-ahead run ended up costing him the game. Oftentimes, even adults listen to the wrong words in games and they forfeit a victory. You know, the church too often has forfeited living in the victory of Jesus Christ. We find ourselves in the tears of this world, uh, listening to the word of the enemy, the powerful authoritative words of our culture, and we have forfeited the opportunity to live in the victory of Christ who is our King, tasting the fruit of the already realities of the not yet kingdom. This morning, as we study this final picture, parable of the kingdom of God in Mark, we have an opportunity that by the grace of God, we can repent and return to the authoritative voice of our King Jesus. Join me as we read these verses, 30 to 34 of chapter 4, and in the call and response that's afterwards, we ask that you join in that as well. Hear the word of God. And Jesus said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable shall we use for it? It's like a grain of mustard seed, which, when sown on the ground, is the smallest of all seeds of the earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes 
larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make their nests in its shade. With many such parables, Jesus spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his disciples, he explained everything. All flesh is grass and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Before we study the word of the Lord, will you join me in going to the Lord of the word and prayer? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we ask that you would give us ears on our hearts. Our desire, Lord, is not just to be inspired, but truly transformed. We pray that your spirit would work in a mighty way. Through your word, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It's significant that in a fast-moving gospel, like the gospel of Mark, that 34 verses are spent recording parables that Jesus teaches about the kingdom of God. In this context, if you remember back in verse 1 of chapter 4, Jesus is teaching to very large crowds. And the point of the parables, which is clearly articulated in verse 10 and 11, is revealing the mysteries of the kingdom. Jesus explains everything to his disciples. In fact, the parable of the sower is the only parable in the Gospels that Jesus fully interprets. This is not a secret. It's not a mystery to those who are in close proximity to King Jesus. Look down at verse 34 with me. It's really, really clear. Jesus did not speak to them without using parables, but privately to his own disciples he explained everything. Jesus meets with his disciples personally so that he can explain things clearly. One problem with the church today and disciples of Christ is that we don't have a close enough proximity to Jesus. His grace invites us to come close to him, to listen to him, to have ears that hear on our hearts. This is the main point of all 34 verses and the five parables that we study. Verse 9 captures it. Jesus says it clearly. He who has ears, let him hear. The kingdom comes to those who have ears that hear. That's why the verb or the noun hear is repeated several times all throughout this pericope. Chapter, verse 3, verse 9, 13, 14, 23, 24, and even in our passage today several times. If you find yourself with a heart that is hard, unable to hear and receive the solution, is not to try harder, but to draw yourself closer, responding to God's grace and coming into proximity with our King. Now the focus of this, it's important we remember the context, the launching pad of all these kingdom parables is the parable of the sower, wherein Jesus gave four different soils that receive the word of God. Jesus clearly the sower. The seed, clearly the word of God. The different soils are the soil of the souls of those that receive. Question, do you have ears that hear? There's four different kinds 
of soils that Jesus articulates. First is a hard soil, a hard path, uh, where Satan still has authority. Generally, unregenerate hearts don't have uh, the ability or the power to ward off the authority of Satan. There's a busy path uh, with with competing uh, loyalties and, and desires, other kings outside of Jesus, and the word is taken. Second are excited hearts. Excited hearts that receive the word with excitement. Yay! This is fantastic! Lots of joy and external pompous and fanfare, but then nothing happens. There's rocks in the soil, the roots don't go deep, and nothing bears fruit. Third is the anxious heart. The anxious heart is that heart where the seed can find a bit of a purchase, but it has competing things for uh, loyalties. Those are different weeds and thorns that are in our hearts that are competing for the nutrients of our soul, the idolatry of our soul, that then steals that which is intended for the word of God. And finally, the fourth soil, those are uh, hearts that are ready and trusting. Ready because we've removed or identified the idols of our hearts, the weeds and the thorns of our life, and we're trusting God's word fully. Does your heart have ears? This is how this section is launched into. Uh, We know our soil of our souls is ready and trusting when we take the gospel, the word of God and the work of God more serious than the word of our culture and our own work and our performance. That enables us to be honest and self-aware, identifying the weeds and the thorns and removing those and seeking to trust God with all of our heart, leaning not on our own understanding and in all of our ways, acknowledging him and obeying him and walking in his path. If we're not sowing the seeds of God's word, the the next parable that we looked at uh, talked about how the the sower that focusing on the fourth soil is not the son of man anymore, but it's actually that person with a third heart, uh, the fourth soil, the the heart that's ready and trusting. And and how do we know if our hearts are ready and trusting? Um, Well, then we are believing it in our hearts, we're capturing it in our heads, and we're obeying it with our hands but we're also scattering the seed of God's word in the soil of our society, seeking uh, to love our neighbors as we love ourselves, seeking the shalom of our neighborhood, and also making disciples of all nations. The context is important because Jesus, throughout these different parables, he's switching similes. Uh, The fruitfulness of of the fourth soil becomes light. It's a lamp that's hidden under a basket. Uh, The son of man who is the sower of God's word, that is switched to the individual who's gardening your own soul, soul in the fourth soil. And so now the seed that was the word of God becomes the kingdom of God. It's not, this is not the same seed that we have been looking at. The transition is significant because you'll remember what the Greek word parable actually means. It means literally to throw or to set something alongside or beside something else. It draws a comparison between two things, either by analogy or by simile. It says, this is like that. And here, the this is the small mustard seed and the that is the kingdom of God. Are we on the same page here? Today's parable teaches us about how small beginnings are substantial in becomings. Things that seem insignificant are actually immeasurably important in the kingdom of God. 
Now you know this in your ordinary life. How many of you all have email or Facebook or Twitter? Yes, it's a raise of hand. Everybody does in here, right? Yeah. Do you know the little at sign actually holds all of that together? That little at sign is completely insignificant. It was called the snail by Italians and the monkey tail by the Dutch. And in 1536, it was used by scribes originally to be a shorthand, an approximation. And later it became a symbol for merchants who were trying to approximate a cost in a small regional part of the world. And somehow that little at sign, the little snail tail, monkey tail, it found its way on a keyboard and it really meant nothing. I think most people looked at the little symbol and, and, and said to themselves, you poor little symbol, you're not a real letter. Maybe one day you can grow up and have a capital letter like the other 26 letters. But for now, you're just an insignificant small little symbol above my number two that I don't know what to do with. But there was a man who was named Ray Tomlinson. He was a computer programmer, and he's trying to figure out a way that computers could speak to each other. He needed a tiny and obscure symbol that no one understood what it meant or would confuse it with another uh, priority. And so Ray Tomlinson began to connect computer programs in 1971, and he said, quote, I was looking for a symbol that wasn't used much. Tiny, obscure, insignificant. The small beginnings of the at sign uh, became the foundation, really, of communication in our world today. Computers can speak to each other. We can email each other. Influencers can use Twitter and Instagram, and, and global companies can connect economies. Governments can function more efficiently, and militaries are actually more mighty because of that seemingly insignificant symbol. You see, you depend on it. But what was tiny and had a small beginning found a substantial becoming. You see, the mustard seed is like that at symbol. It's a seed, but it's one of obscurity, tiny and insignificant. But when it is sown in the garden and falls the earth, it becomes immeasurably important. You see in this picture that the mustard tree seeds that grow in the Middle East, can you please put the picture up, are far different than the seeds that grow uh, mustard trees in the United States. Uh, the surrounding areas around the herb gardens in the ancient Near East and current Middle East are uh, far more dry than ours uh, here in America. But this tiny mustard seed can grow up to be 10 or 15 feet tall. It's so big it becomes the largest seed in the herb garden, and it becomes a place for birds to find refuge and shade, shelter from the squelching heat. The small seed becomes a refuge for birds and a shelter for the ecosystem of life in the area. The simile is significant for us today. It's teaching you. It's teaching me. It's reminding the church that small beginnings have substantial becomings in the kingdom of God. Well, you say, Mitchell, I get it. 
a little lat symbol, a little seed. It becomes a big kingdom of God. It holds the world together. I get it. Can you just close in prayer? No. Let's dig in a little bit deeper, okay? What is the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God is the rule of God by the word of God in the place of God. The kingdom of God is the rule of God by the word of God in the place of God. We see it at the beginning of the word of God. It's in the garden, in creation, where God calls everything into existence by his word. He rules over the place. That is all the universe and the people that are Adam and Eve created on day six. He rules over them by his word. The place of God with the people of God under the authority of the word of God. This is the kingdom of God. But as Adam and Eve rejected the word of God and embraced the word of the serpent, the word of the enemy that didn't lead to victory but defeat, they were cast out of the place of God and into wilderness wanderings. You see, all of the story of scripture is about a restoration and renewal of the kingdom of God, the authority of the word of the king over his people in his place. This is why it's significant that Israel, part of the promise to Abraham, his offspring, they would have a place, a land, where they could be under the rule of God, the king, and even their king in Israel, Deuteronomy 17, you'll remember, is called to be visibly submissive to the King of kings and Lord of lords. But even in that place of Israel, the land of Palestine, there was not authority given to God's word. Jesus came as king. He came as the word made flesh. And by redemption, his people are bought with his blood, transplanted into the new place, that is the people of God. The geography of ancient Palestine is replaced with the body of Christ of which he is our head. And one day there will be a place for all who believe where the kingdom of God is fully seen, the new heavens and the new earth, where the word of God 100% rules over the people of God in the place of God. For now, the already reality of these not yet fully realized promises we see in Christ in Colossians 1, 13 to 14 helps us read these words. Paul says that he, Jesus, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of God's beloved Son, in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. Do you see it, church? The king of creation is the king of, of redemption. He's the head of the church the people of God, and by his word, he rules over us. What we know in part now, we will one day more fully know. And the people who are saved by God's grace are invited to live in the victory of God through submitting to the word of God. That is the fullness of the kingdom of God. So God's kingdom has small beginnings but it will become huge. Now, did you know, this is all through scripture, did you know the first promise after Adam and Eve 
were exiled from the place of God in the garden, the first promise came in the form of seed. Go back and read it. In Genesis 3.15, God says to the serpent that the offspring of the woman, the seed of her womb, would crush the head of the enemy, that there will be victory through that small seed. And Genesis is really a narrative of the journey of that seed promise. And it, in every way, has extremely small beginnings. From Eve, it runs through her genealogy, finds its home in Abraham and his wife Sarah, who, by the way, the first time we meet her in Genesis 11.30, she's described as barren. And God brings from nothing the promise of his redemption. And Abraham has Isaac, the child of the covenant. Isaac has Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons. And by the end of Genesis, this small seed of promise has turned into the 12 tribes of Israel. This is the beginning of redemptive restoration. But also, the small seed of the church, it gives salvation for all generations. Jesus himself demonstrates this. You understand that when Jesus was uh, teaching and walking around earth, he himself only had 12 disciples, one of whom flat out betrayed him, all of whom abandoned him. Small beginnings. And as he taught and sowed the seed of his word in the kingdom, we read the New Testament that those small seeds of disciples turned into a, a massive movement in Acts of the church, and by the time we get to the end of Revelation, it's described as myriads and myriads, thousands upon thousands, who are worshiping the Lamb around the throne. The small beginnings have substantial becomings, and what seems insignificant turns out to be immeasurably important. And the seed of the kingdom that was sown in the garden of the redemptive realities that would come through the ultimate offspring or the seed of the woman, it turns into salvation for every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. And this is God's plan from the beginning. <laughs> this is fascinating. On the one hand, we see all through the Old Testament, Abraham, his offspring were called to bless all the families of the earth, Genesis 12, 1 to 3. But all through the Old Testament, the mission of God's people is to be a light to the nations. It's everywhere, but no more clearly defined than Isaiah 49, verse 6, where, it's, where the prophet says to the people of God, it is too small of a thing that my light is contained only for the people of Israel. I am sending a light for all nations, salvations to the ends of the earth. And it's this reason that Jesus uses a, a interchangeable imagery for fruitfulness and light in these parables. It's consistent with Old Testament teaching. But not only that, all through the Old Testament, we could study places like Daniel and Ezekiel and different Psalms. When the kingdom of God is described, it is described as one as a very large tree where all of the birds come to roost. 
This is Old Testament imagery of God's ancient plan for the small and seemingly insignificant beginning of his kingdom to become a substantial reality that is to give salvation for all generations and to every tribe, tongue, and nation. This is awesome. It's amazing. And God wants you, his sheep, to see that you're part of a global flock. You're a living stone that is with stones from all over history in the world, disciples that make disciples, that respond to the grace of God that are ripped from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. You are not the subject of the story. You are the subject of the king. He rules. And the gift of the kingdom is that we become part of this organic growing by repenting and believing. So what does all this mean for us today? I mean, we know it and we celebrate it, that 175 years ago, this church was planted by John McCullough and several other people with a seed of hope that there would be generations and generations of, of families that would celebrate in this place of God, the rule of God, submitting to the word of God, that we might live for the glory of God. And in the, in the seeds that were planted 175 years ago have really reached out and touched countless neighbors and neighborhoods and nations. We understand it, but can we really grasp it personally? What we need to understand, it's, it's by faith alone that we become a part of the kingdom. You're not a part of the kingdom because you sit in these pews. You're not a part of the kingdom because your family has come to this church. You're not a hamburger if you sit in Whataburger all day. You're not a car if you sit in a garage all day. You are not a fish if you swim in the ocean all day. You are not born again if you're in church all day. You are saved by faith alone. And the seed of the kingdom takes roots in our hearts by faith. And the rule of God is what restores us. It is a work of the Spirit of God in the lives of children of God so that we're more conformed to the image of God, that we might more faithfully and fruitfully live for the glory of God. That is how we're saved. This is why Jesus begins teaching in the kingdom in Mark in chapter 1, verse 15, by saying, repent and believe. By faith alone we enter the kingdom of God, but by grace alone the kingdom of God shines in and through us. With Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 10, we say we work hard responding to God's grace because of God's grace. We're grounded in God's grace and fueled by God's grace. The small steps that we take yield substantial and huge kingdom fruit because they're intimate steps, every step grounded in God's grace. I challenge you to consider small steps that you can take personally, individually, to have substantial kingdom becomings through you. I challenge you to disregard the cultural narrative that only big matters, that only flashy matters. I challenge you to kill your insecurity that sees your faith more about how people approve of you or what they see in you, kill it 
and allow the small beginnings of the kingdom of God to have substantial becomings of fruit in your life. Respond to God's grace by getting into relationship with him. Deeper listening, more meditating, simple learning, studying, and sharing God's word. Some people in here need to have a small step of saying, I'm going to read God's word every day. Others need to go deeper and say, I'm going to really study and meditate on God's word. All of us need to take small steps and trust God for a harvest. All of us need to believe what God's word teaches about you, about us. In Christ, we are his beloved. Nothing can separate you from his love. In Christ, you are secure. You're more secure in Christ than you are no matter how big or small your bank account is or what zip code you live in. In the gospel, you are worthy. You don't need to prove your worth. God looks at you and says, you're enough. I love you. We need to take small steps to believe these kingdom truths that are found in God's word so that we can find the power of the blessing of the covenant that we're renewed and made new creations by his word. We've got to take small steps to make sure God's word is capturing our mind, transforming us in view of his mercy. We've got to have a biblical worldview in everything from race and ethnicity to economics. We got to trust what the Bible says about gender and sexuality and dating and status and our image and what real justice is. We've got to take small roots to dig our small steps to dig our roots in the ground of God's grace to repent from allowing other words to, to form us. We got to take small steps in cultivating generosity and gratefulness. And we've got to take small steps to really believe. We've got to forgive as we've been forgiven. Let go of your anger and forgive, lack of forgiveness. We have to love as we've been loved. Stop love, using people to love yourself. We've got to serve as we've been served. Christ emptied himself. He became nothing. We get to do that for others. Thankfulness and generosity should flow from our hearts. And by the grace alone, the kingdom of God shines in and through us, but it's by the word of God alone that we evaluate our primary identity, community, and purpose. In the kingdom, Jesus is our primary identity, not what you do, not what your relationship status is, not where you're from, not where you went to high school. It is your primary identity to be in Christ. The church is your primary community. Your primary community is the body of Christ. And the kingdom of God is your primary purpose. To truly love our neighbors. To seek shalom of our neighborhoods. And to seek to reach people in every tribe, tongue, and nation. And when the word of God alone evaluates our primary identity, our community, our purpose, and we will see that we will live for the glory of God alone. God wants to reorder all that's been historically disordered by sin through the cross of Jesus, redirecting the good of his creation for the glory of his name. And guess what, church? He wants to use you to do it. I don't know. Doesn't sound like much of a plan A to me, but I'm not God. He wants you to see the 
immeasurable impact that you can have when you trust the power of the gospel, taking a small step, trusting for substantial becomings, that the seed of the kingdom that is growing throughout all of history and all the world might have a substantial becoming in and through you. For the glory of God alone, all of life redeemed, for all the glory of our King. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the power of the gospel. Thank you for the truth of your kingdom. Thank you for your grace that frees us to repent. Lord, it is true. We have not trusted your word and your work, and we have trusted the word and the, uh, of our culture and the work of our own lives more than we have you. Lord, please forgive us and wash us with your blood. Give us faith that we might walk in small steps and trust you for substantial becomings, knowing that your kingdom is growing, that it is a reality, and that we can find more and more of a fullness in our lives and our life together when we believe. Lord Jesus, we thank you, we trust you, and we ask that you get glory from all of our life. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.